Talk Radio. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. New Zealand terrorist on my couch. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and you are Terrorist Therapist. Well, today we're going to be talking about um, the New Zealand terrorist, uh, incredible tragedy, of course, and he has an incredibly interesting background. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about that. I'll give you a little tease, a little, a little preview here. Uh, of what, how I have analyzed him and what I think um, is wrong with him. Uh, of course, you know, of course, what's basically wrong is that he has an incredible amount of hatred in him. But the interesting thing as a psychiatrist is where did all of this come from? So let me give you this little tease. Um, his manifesto, uh, that he, he wrote a manifesto and he sent it to... Um, the Prime Minister of, um, the head of, of uh, New Zealand, and media outlets. And um, he opened the document with, the, with a poem, uh, or words from a poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Now, that poem is, as you may know, written by Dylan Thomas, and it was an ode to his dying father, imploring him not to die. Now, how does that fit? I know. I know what you're thinking. What? What is she talking about? What does that have to do with this horrendous mass shooting of all of these people in the mosque in New Zealand? Well, I will get to that. But first, let me talk a little bit about uh, what actually happened. There, um, this mass shooting... Um, took place in Christ Church uh, in two mosques. It was actually one mosque after another that the shooter went to. Um, he first, in the end, he chose, of course, a time when there are lots of people in the mosques for Friday prayer. He began the attacks at Al Noor Mosque uh, at 1.40 in the afternoon and then continued on to the Linwood Islamic Center at 1.55. He killed 50 people, injured 50 more. Uh, there were, let's see, there were um, 42 people who died at the Al-Nur Mosque, seven people who died at the Linwood Islamic Center, and one died in the hospital. And then there were uh, 50 more who were injured, but not fatally. So, um, as you know, I usually talk about radical Islamists, not, um, not other kinds of terrorists, but uh, Brenton Brent Brent, Brent Tarrant, that was a Freudian slip, Brenton Tarrant um, certainly is, was, well, he's still alive, but he's, his rampage was an act of terror. And it's similar to the school shooters because they also create acts of terror. Now, he was, is 28 years old. 
And um, what I'm going to be talking to you about is how both his childhood and his travels uh, combined to turn him into a man who would commit this mass shooting. Um, let's see. One of the things that's going back to the shooting itself, though, I wanted to mention, New Zealand is considered the second most safest country in the world behind Iceland. So, of course, this incredible, um, horrendous mass shooting, which was considered the um, most severe in its modern history, was shocking to happen in such a country. Uh, their Islam is practiced by 46,000 New Zealanders, which is 1.2% of the population. There, were, um, there are over 3,000 people in Christ Church who are Muslim. Um, the Al-Nur Mosque, where he first started his rampage, opened in 1985, but then the Linwood Islamic Center opened more recently in 2018. And now, um, as I tweeted when this first when the news first came across, uh, obviously this was um, an act by a man who thought the New Zealand authorities weren't doing enough to control the immigrants. And he saw, uh, as I'll tell you more about, he saw how this destroyed Europe, all of this mass immigration, and that led to fear and rage in him, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. And how that relates to his father, I will tell you later on. So, um, as you may know, while he was committing this rampage, um, he live-streamed it. He live-streamed the first 17 minutes of the attack on Facebook Live. And, of course, then people went to it, especially, you know, as it was in the news, everybody started searching for it, right? And it got on other uh, websites, and there were other places that you could see it. Um, it was very, it was, it was very hard for, hard for people to watch and yet they all tuned in to watch it, you know, like a, like a, an accident on the side of the road. But anyhow, uh, and of course now there is all of this controversy, yet, yet more controversy against Facebook and why does Facebook live exist? Why do they let people go, let these videos go out live? Uh, any videos go out live, perhaps there should be some kind of a delay. Um, there's a complaint that uh, Facebook didn't take enough, didn't quickly stop it enough, didn't take it down quickly enough. And so all of that is going to be going on and, and is a result of this. Um, he, one of the things that's interesting is that before, as he was driving to the mosque and these, these 17 minutes on Facebook Live, and start with him driving to the mosque and end with him driving away. And um, moments before he started shooting, he played a traditional marching song of the British military called the British Grenadiers. And he played some other songs too, but this is particularly significant, in my opinion, because um, I think a lot of this had to do with uh, his relationship with his father, um, as I hinted at by the poem, and um, his saying that his father, his ancestry, um, was British, Scottish, and Irish. And in, in some reports, he talks about his father being 
British, or he certainly at least felt that his ancestry was particularly British. And um, so you will see, um, see where this is going. He, um, he, well, now let me get into his childhood because this, this is the key. And this is, of course, you know, as a, as a psychiatrist, it's always, it's always in your childhood, whatever it is that you, whatever traumas or trouble um, you get into as an adult, problems, look towards your childhood, look back at your childhood for its roots. I mean, you know, yes, Freud said this um, 100 years ago, and it is as true today as it was when he first discovered it. And I can tell you this based upon not only uh, uh, studying at, the, at Freud's, well, at his daughter's Anna Freud's um, center in London, but also, and of course his books, but also my experience as a psychiatrist with thousands, I don't know, hundreds, thousands uh, of patients, maybe not thousands of patients per se, but certainly thousands of uh, evaluations, you know, forensic evaluations and so on. So anyhow, it is true that you can always see a pattern between things that happen in a person's childhood. Now, what's interesting is that he describes his childhood uh, as a regular childhood and that there was nothing unusual, you know, don't look, basically he was saying in his, in his manifesto, like, don't look in, into my childhood, you won't find the roots of this there. It, I had a regular childhood, you know, he was trying to sort of whitewash his childhood and in fact he may well have thought that it was, although that even seems difficult to believe. Um, he has the typical kinds of pattern that mass shooters have. Parents getting divorced, an addiction to violent media, uh, violent, well, violent video games, um, problems with his dysfunctional relationships with his mother and his father, although he loved his father, but also had problems with him. Um, and, and, then, and then, of course, the travels uh, is what gave him the direction for his rage from his childhood. And... Um, caused him to focus it on these mosques in New Zealand. Now, we'll get back, we'll get more into his childhood and uh, into his travels and understand how all of these things came together to turn him into New Zealand's worst mass shooter in modern times. So stay tuned. You've been listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. Stay tuned and she'll be right back with more analysis of this week's hottest topic in terror. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio. Now back to The Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. Welcome back. We are talking today about the New Zealand terrorist, putting him on my couch, analyzing him. And of course, uh, any good analysis starts with his childhood. Now, <laughs> I have been doing a lot of research on this and um, gathering tidbits, facts from different reports. And, you know, of course, not all of them agree with each other. But there are enough things that are consistent that um, I can put together his childhood uh, and the problems therein, the, despite the fact that he claims to have had a re made the point, not just claims, but in his manifesto, 
he claims to have uh, and made the point that uh, he had such a regular childhood. Okay, so you may have seen um, the picture of him. There's a picture going around of him being held by his father. He looks like this adorable blonde-headed kid, um, floppy hair, and uh, you know, being hugged by his father, held up in the air. His father's hugging him, and uh, his mother says that this picture came from when the family were together in Hawaii where his father was about to compete in an Ironman triathlon. Now, the mother said this is one of her fondest memories, this picture, and uh, Brenton Tarrant had just celebrated his birthday. Now, so, and it's funny because some uh, media outlets are, are, you know, believing him and saying that he had a normal uh, upbringing in the royal town of Grafton, which is in New South Wales, which is in Australia. He was only living in New Zealand for about the past two years or so. He was originally from Australia. And um, uh, as I was saying before, I started to explain that his parents divorced early in his life. And, you know, I, I know there are a lot of people Uh, who want to, who are divorced, who want to say that divorce doesn't leave scars on children. Well, you know, that's to make themselves feel better that if they're divorced, that they did not leave scars on their children. But I can tell you that it does. Not, I'm not saying that all all children of divorced parents uh, grow up to be mass murderers, but there are scars. And in all of the mass murderers, not, nothing to do with terrorism of any sort necessarily, but just, in, just looking at, at people who um, committed murder, uh, like school shooters, for example, um, there are, of course there's always, there are always things, dysfunctional things in their childhood, but one of these things is divorce. Now, um, in his childhood, there are, there's more than the divorce. Um, he had a complex relationship with his father, as I was saying. Now, his father was um, a man who was, you could say, obsessed with running in triathlons. He, in one report, I read that his father ran in 72 triathlons. And, of course, he was obsessed with being fit because, in order to run in all these triathlons. And he worked as a garbage man. Um, And he died, uh, well, a contributing cause to his death was um, asbestos poisoning or, you know, exposure to asbestos, which caused cancer. And he had a long battle with cancer. But sticking on the triathlon issue for a minute, uh, and his father was only 49 when he died. And um, Brenton was in high school. His father died in approximately 2010. And so, um, so this was very traumatic. It was especially traumatic because as, although the father had this um, long battle with cancer, he ultimately died from suicide. Now, I have found this so far only in one uh, report, not that I have read every single report on their, his family, but it's interesting that that hasn't come out in more reports. Uh, and, and actually, it was from 
it was from his grandmother. So I tend to believe that grandma knows best. Uh, she is the one who said that he changed when uh, he found his father after his father had committed suicide. Now, you know, presumably, perhaps uh, his father, you know, felt that his fight against cancer was taking its toll and it was horrible, you know, it was a horrible way to live and so on. And he took matters into his own hands, kind of like um, Tarrant took matters into his own hands in terms of trying to rid New Zealand of immigrants. So, so it's a very tragic um, end to his father, a very young man. Um, now, but here's the thing. Um, Tarrant was bullied in school for being fat and for having red hair and freckles. Now, imagine what it's like to be a fat kid <laughs> being bullied for being fat, and your father is a triathlon competitor running in 72 triathlons and um, at least at times uh, representing Australia in these triathlons. I mean, here we have the perfect picture of health, well, <laughs> except for his exposure to asbestos, which caused cancer. But, and I think that, um, that Tarrant probably believes that his father may have been exposed to some of this asbestos through his job as a garbage man. Perhaps there was some, you know, one of the places where he was picking up garbage had high asbestos content. I don't know that part, but I'm just I'm speculating on that. But he did certainly, he is reported in many places to have died from cancer and um, related to or caused by asbestos. So here you are being bullied for, for being fat. And meanwhile, your father is running in all these triathlons. Obviously, that puts up... Um, you know, he, he most Tarrant probably felt that his father was disappointed in him that for being fat, uh, that he wasn't good enough for his father. Now, I'm not saying that his father was mean to him or abusive towards him or anything. I'm just saying that uh, it what it would have made for a difficult kind of relationship, certainly. And I think that there were, um, you know, there was this ambivalence. So when his father died. Um, you know, when someone dies who you are ambivalent over, both loving them and having these issues with them, it is harder to mourn them. Um, after his father died, or around the time that his father was dying of cancer, so from around 2009 to 2011, Tarrant worked as a um, personal trainer. So he, he left school, he didn't go to university, and he um, uh, became a personal trainer. And apparently he was a good one, and he worked with kids and so on, and you could kind of understand how he would want to work with kids um, so that these kids wouldn't be, be bullied by other people for being fat. So he was a good one to do that. Um, then um, his, his grandmother also had some uh, other pieces of information. She said that he was a computer nerd and he was afraid of girls. So he was afraid to talk to girls. Um, he was afraid to interact with them. You know, he undoubtedly felt like he was going to be rejected by them. Um, and she said that when he, he was addicted, she also had said that he was addicted to, to video games. And it's even said that he was so addicted that he would sit there and continue playing video games and wet himself, urinate on himself, um, because he didn't want to get up to go to the bathroom and leave the video game. 
And um, the grandmother said that, you know, when, she, when he found his father after his father suicided, that um, he was never the same. And she begged him to go see a psychiatrist, but he wouldn't do it. I mean, this is also typical in the background of people who become shooters, mass shooters. That, you know, there is some recognition by, uh, well, at best, there's usually some recognition by family members that the person needs psychiatric treatment. Uh, Oftentimes, they don't make them go. Um, And also, sometimes, unfortunately, when they do make them go as a child or a teenager, um, if the person doesn't get good psychiatric treatment, then that doesn't stop their trajectory to go on to become a mass shooter anyhow. But um, people, you know, certainly we have seen enough examples of this, of mass shooters who have, whose problems were um, noted when they were younger and who weren't made to go into therapy and who then went on to be mass shooters. I mean, one, it's really important to, um, force. I mean, you know, of course, of course, it's better not to have to force anyone into therapy, whether it's a child, a teenager, or an adult, they kind of have to want to do it themselves. But when it's a child or a teenager, uh, they should not have the last word as to whether or not they go into therapy. So those are some of the things. Um, now, his mother, uh, his mother has, is, was an English teacher, and she is still living in, in Australia where he grew up. And um, he has hardly visited her after his father died. And again, I think that's the turning point in his life, his father's death. He um, got some inheritance from his father. And he also uh, supposedly invested in Bitcoin. And that, that is how he had the money to, um, to uh, go traveling around the world, which he did for about seven years. And his travels, which I'm going to talk to you about in the next segment, his travels is where his direction for his Islamophobia and his hatred came into being. He was pointed in that direction by things he saw as a um, as he was traveling. But, you know, the, the simmering, the trauma from coming upon his father's um, dead, his dead father after his father suicided, plus uh, all the things that, be, that occurred before that, the bullying, the addiction to violent, violent video games, all of these things that I just talked about uh, set the stage. And then he went on this trip for approximately seven years to all kinds of countries. Um, and that is where his direction came from. You know, in other words, the, the direction for his rage came from that. And then he came, went to New Zealand and he acted it out. So what's interesting is that although his mother writes all kinds of sweet things about him on social media uh, and writes sweet things in general about, you know, loving people and very, very sort of sweet kinds of things, um, indeed, <laughs> uh, Tarrant hasn't gone back to visit her very much. In all, once he came back from his trip around the world, he has not visited his mother very much. So what does that tell you? Uh, it tells you that there is some dysfunction there as well. But when we come back, I will now talk about the trip that he made around the world and some of the influences that he had along that way. You've been listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. 
Stay tuned and she'll be right back with more analysis of this week's hottest topic in terror. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio. Now back to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. Welcome back. Before the break and all today, we've been talking about Brenton Tarrant, who is the New Zealand terrorist, and I am putting him on my couch. I just explained to you all of the things, well, all of the things that are known so far about, that was enough, all the things that I described really are enough to explain why um, someone would have come from a childhood that would uh, make them ripe for doing something violent later on uh, because of these dysfunctional relationships or ambivalent relationships that I talked about in regard to his mother and father and also his uh, being addicted to violent video games to the point that he would urinate on himself rather than get up and go to the bathroom and interrupt his violent video game, uh, his parents' divorce, and so on. And um, now I'm going to, so it was, it was after his father's death and his shocking experience of coming upon his father after his father killed himself, after he was, while he was going through a really long, difficult battle with cancer, uh, he then went on his way. That was, you know, that, that trauma that I believe that that was the turning point in his life and that sent him on his way. And he traveled all over the world. Um, clearly, he had between his father's inheritance and the investments he made in Bitcoin, he had, must have had a substantial amount of money because um, I mean, even if he lived uh, simply as he was traveling, uh, so far, there have been no reports of his working in these countries, but, you know, he could have done odd jobs, of course. But in any case, um, he went to all kinds of countries. He went to Europe. He went to Asia, um, uh, uh, Pakistan, North Korea. I mean, North Korea and Pakistan. Interesting choices. Um, and he had originally described Pakistan uh, on social media as this beautiful country, and he, you know, he loved it there. So it's kind of what happened to make him go from thinking that way, which was earlier in his travels, um, or it's, uh, to thinking to, to, you know, opening fire on two mosques. Um, there are a number of in his manifesto. He attributes uh, his his attitude. <laughs> towards his, his decision to um, commit this mass attack on a mosque or mosques um, to a number of things, various people who he said influenced him and um, to various incidents that occurred, uh, notably terrorist attack, radical Islamist terrorist attacks that killed people in Europe and um, he, he identified with Europe. He says that in his manifesto, you know, uh, I am European. In fact, he talks about how, where was that? Um, he talks about how people, Australians, are, are drunk, people from, drunk people from, um, from England, you know, are, are people who came to Australia and they're, they're just, um, they're just 
drunk. <laughs> um, not very nice. But anyway, so he, he really identifies with Europeans. He says that, that I am European. And, um, you know, and, and yes, of course, um, Australia, uh, you know, is a, belong to England. Um, and, and he, um, uh, so he, he, has, he, he points to events, terrorist attacks by radical Islamists that um, murdered Europeans. And um, in fact, he talks about how um, when he was in France, he, he had a, an experience at a shopping center where he saw that Muslim in- immigrants outnumbered the French people in huge, by a huge margin. Um, and he said that's when he had the epiphany that he was going to commit violence towards Muslims because he calls this the invasion of immigrants. He was also angry uh, in regard to France that Macron won because he believes that Macron isn't going to be doing enough to um, stop this mass influx of Muslim immigrants into France, which of course is true. (laughs) Um, He also was inspired by the 2017 um, uh, attack by Doran Osborne, Darren Osborne, who drove into worshipers outside the Finsbury Park Mosque in London. That was another example. Uh, he also was inspired by Anders Breivik, the um, terrorist who killed 69 kids of a workers' youth league on the island of Utoya in Norway in 2011. So, and he said uh, he vowed to take revenge for the, quote, thousands of European lives lost to terror attacks. So basically, he was both um, trying to avenge the deaths of these Europeans who were dying and continue to die uh, by this by immigrants. I mean, it's not just immigrants, but <laughs> lots of examples of immigrants coming into Europe and um, and perpetrating terror attacks. So it is both on behalf of the Europeans who died um, and also on behalf of, in a sense, the Australians and the New Zealanders um, because of seeing this influx beginning to happen there, particularly in New Zealand, where he was living after he came back from his seven-year tour, um, he was beginning to see the same thing happening in New Zealand and, and presumably in Australia as well. But um, he didn't want this to happen to the place that, that he also identified with, you know, that having grown up in Australia. And so he was seeing, you know, he had seen what, what happened to Europe, and he was seeing the beginnings of this happening to his, uh, closer to his homeland. And this was, you know, as I said, to avenge the deaths of people who were already killed by terrorists in Europe, and to, um, and his anger at the people in, um, in Australia, New Zealand, who weren't doing enough to prevent these immigrants from settling there as well. So, um, also he, he claims to have had a brief contact 
with Anders um, Breivik, uh, you know, it, it, saying that, that he was inspired by him and that he claims to have had, a, I don't know what brief, he doesn't describe what brief contact means. And Breivik's lawyer is claiming, is denying that they had any contact, but that's, uh, we probably will, we may find this out during the trial. Now, um, as I said earlier, nine minutes before the attacks, he mailed his manifesto, which has been variously described as 73 pages, 87 pages. Um, but anyhow, he mailed it, emailed it to over 30 recipients, including the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who has gone on to try to bring forth a ban on automatic uh, rifles that is still being um, discussed, but she has put forth, uh, according to her, she wants to ban these rifles, automatic rifles, so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Um, and they raised the terrorism threat level to high for the first time in New Zealand when this was taking place. So um, let me... Um, here, let me tell you some of the things that he, that he said in his manifesto in regard to his visit to France. He described a town in eastern France as a, quote, cursed place. He wrote, quote, in every French city, in every French town, the invaders were there. No matter where I traveled, no matter how small or rural the community I visited, the invaders were there. For every French man or woman, there was double the number of invaders. I had seen enough and in anger drove out of the town, refusing to stay any longer in the cursed place and headed on to the next town. So, um, you know, obviously this is a man who, and as I was saying earlier about, he was partly inspired by the attack on the Muslim, on the mosque in uh, London. Um, you know, that gave him to some degree an idea of, um, of doing that, you know, there have been other, other who was also, um, he also is said to have been inspired by other attacks on mosques. So basically, he came back to what was you know, essentially his homeland, um, and to, to um, not only to avenge, but as I said, to do what he could do um, to, to prevent this or to take, you know, it was both a prevention and, a, and, a, and an avengement, <laughs> and to avenge. Now, the title of, um, of his manifesto, he took from the work of the French anti-immigration writer, Renaud, Renaud Camus. And um, his, Camus' book was called Le Grand Remplacement. And so um, the manifesto of Brenton Tarrant was called the, um, the Great Replacement. And, um, and let me read you some quotes about him, because I think what he writes about in regard to France, and he seems to be particularly um, upset about France, um, he said, quote, I found my emotions swinging between fuming rage and suffocating despair at the indignity of the invasion of France, the pessimism of the French people, the loss of culture and identity, 
and the farce of the political solutions offered. Now, um, of course, Camus was trying to say that uh, he had nothing to do with it. I mean, to some extent, uh, Brenton Tarrant blamed uh, Trump. Um, you know, he blamed a number of people, but really, I mean, the blame is on him. On him. <laughs> um, he, let's see. He, he also said in his manifesto, millions of people are pouring across our borders, invited by the state and corporate entities to replace the white people who have failed to reproduce, failed to create the cheap labor, new consumers, and tax base that the corporations and states need to thrive. This crisis of mass immigration and sub-replacement fertility is... That's an interesting way of calling it sub-replacement fertility, in other words, not procreating as quickly as Muslims are, is an assault on the European people that, if not combated, will ultimately result in the complete racial and cultural replacement of the European people. Now, you know, I mean, he is right. Not that I am not in any way endorsing what he did, of course not, but... I have seen this with my own eyes, and what he's talking about in France and in Europe in general is right. So, what's the solution? We need to find better solutions than to take one's anger and despair out on Muslims. Um, but there does need to be a firmer stand taken by all the leaders of the European countries. Merkel in Germany, of course, is the worst, but in France it is incredibly bad as well. Because, um, and, and you know, <laughs> by my saying this, I am not Islamic phobic. However, I am a lover of the cultures in Europe. And I think whether it was immigrants, mass immigration of any people, any nationality or any religion, it would not be good for um, the countries that are taking in an overpowering share of people from another culture. It doesn't matter that it was Muslim. I mean, yes, I, I mean, it matters in a way in the sense that some, uh, of course, some of the terrorist attacks were perpetrated by not normal Muslims, <laughs> but by radical Islamists. Now, in... Um, I just want to point out something. You know, this would be, this example, this New Zealand attack, is a great teachable moment for parents because this is a time, an opportunity to talk about Islamophobia. And at the risk of sounding uh, self-promotional, I want to make the point, because this is an example, I want to make the point that in the, my book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My!, how to protect your child in a time of terror. Um, I talk in the part that's for grown-ups about how to prevent Islamophobia. And in the part for kids, uh, the picture book part, that's the second half for kids, I have a picture of a little girl holding a teddy bear that says, I'm a Muslim and I'm not a terrorist. And uh, I write, there's a long word called xenophobia. It means fear of strangers. Although you should report things or people who seem suspicious, it doesn't mean that you should suspect everyone who doesn't look like you or who comes from a different country or has a different religion than your family believes in. It's especially important to remember that not all Muslims are terrorists. Most Muslims want peace just like we do. And some terrorists, like the ones who were born in America, may not even be Muslims. They are just traitors. So you should encourage your friends to get to know people and give them a chance to show you who they really are before assuming bad things about them. 
And that is absolutely true. And I hope that parents do take this opportunity to instill uh, a more tolerant attitude in their children so that attacks like this don't happen again. Thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.